Amen. <laughs> if you would take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Excuse me just a moment. I'm sorry, I've had a bit of a cold this week, but I will do my best <coughs> to not allow that to <coughs> get in the way. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read today a number of verses starting in uh, verse 24 of chapter 1 down through chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to read this section together because this is sort of the next logical chunk of verses that all go together thematically. Uh, Even though today, as we uh, study this passage, we're really only going to look at verse 24. This, to me, has been such a a thought-provoking and just captivating verse that that's as far as we're going to get today is this one verse uh, and we'll we'll take up the rest of it next time but i wanted to read it in its context to be sure that we hear it as it's meant to be heard uh colossians 1 and and let me just say this as i'm going to read it you'll notice probably as you read verse 24 if you haven't noticed it before that this verse is kind of odd there there are some things that it says that when we first hear it, are just hard to understand. We don't know what to make of it. And there are other things, even in that verse, that maybe are easier to understand. But, but I want us to do two things today. This is my goal for the sermon today. Is First, <coughs> that those things which are difficult to understand, we will come to understand. I hope that as we study it together and, and think about what it says, that these will make sense. The difficulties will become clear. Uh, But secondly, that it will not just be sort of this intellectual exercise in beginning to understand a difficult portion of the word better, but I hope that it will speak comfort to us. This is a verse to those who are suffering. It's about Paul's suffering. And so if you are suffering, or if you have suffered, or if you will suffer, I hope that this verse will be soothing to you, that it will minister the comfort of Christ to you, uh, and that in reading it and in understanding it, there will be great benefit for us. So, with that said, let's read this passage together and let me ask if you're able, would you join me today in standing for the reading of God's holy word? Again, this is Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. Paul writes this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged 
being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these precious, precious promises which are ours, which are able to give us new joy to restore the steadiness of our faith in times of difficulty. Lord, would you use your word by the power of your spirit, cause it to land in our hearts with power and with great conviction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, if you hadn't heard it before, now you've heard verse 24 and perhaps see where there are some things in that verse that are difficult to understand, but let's start with what is simple. Paul says he rejoices in his sufferings for your sake. When Paul says that, the first thing that I am reminded of is that Paul is suffering. This is a letter that Paul is writing to the church from prison. He hasn't mentioned that yet. But he mentions at the very last verse of the book of Colossians where he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. This is one of four of the letters that Paul wrote, which we call the prison epistles. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are all letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison for preaching the gospel. Most likely he was in perhaps a cellar or a cave, some sort of very unpleasant place where he was being guarded and he was in chains for the gospel. Now, that is very notable to me just in thinking about what we've read so far in Colossians. Think back on on this hymn that we've called this hymn about Christ in Colossians chapter 1 that we've studied the last couple of weeks. This is one of the most exalted pieces of just worship to Christ for who he is and for what he has done. In, in all of Paul's letters, this great hymn that, that we think of and we turn to about the preeminence of Christ, that he is the creator of all things, he is the sustainer of all things, <clears throat> that in him all things hold together. And he is before all things. He is the head of the church such that for those who are believers, who are members of his body, Christ is preeminent. Christ is Lord. Nothing happens apart from the the lordship and the sovereignty of Christ over his people. He's writing all of this glorious tribute to, to the worth of Christ and the glory of Christ. And he's doing all of that while he's in prison. And he hasn't yet mentioned that fact. Isn't that amazing? I think, I worry that if I were to write a letter from prison, it might sound different. There might be a little bit more focus on me and my woes, my troubles, all the things that were wrong. When Paul writes a letter from prison, it's all about Christ. It's all about the sovereignty of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. His mind doesn't seem to be overwhelmed in the slightest with his own troubles. It's, it's totally understandable to completely forget that he's writing this from prison because he doesn't mention it. 
the glory of Jesus seems to have so overwhelmed the mind of Paul that that is what he's dwelling on while he's sitting there in prison. That is what he is thankful for. That is what he wants these people in these churches to know. He says, I'm, <clears throat> I'm struggling for you. He wants them to have the same assurance of the goodness of Christ in the midst of their lives that he has. I saw some quote somewhere recently. That's my whole footnote, because I saw this somewhere. Someone said that the doctrine of worry is you take a glance at Christ while you gaze at your circumstances. And the doctrine of trust is you gaze at Christ while taking glances at your circumstances. You see, Paul couldn't have written chapter 1 of Colossians if he had simply been gazing at his circumstances. If everything had been about, woe is me, how has this happened? Here I thought I was doing something good, I was trying to preach and all this. But his soul is so anchored in the depth of the truth of the preeminence of Christ that, that the, the hows and the whys of him ending up in prison don't seem to concern him in the least. His concern is that the glory of Christ be preached, whether vocally to crowds if he's on the outside or in a letter to the churches if that's what he can do. That's his concern. So I'm convicted by this remembrance that Paul is writing this from prison. I'm convicted that how much smaller are the troubles that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, and yet how much greater portion of my working memory do they consume? Paul writes this, of course, to help us, to help us to see Christ, to help us to focus on his glory and his beauty, and in so doing, to put things into perspective. Right? Not to forget them altogether, but to keep them in perspective. That Jesus Christ is the one in whom all things hold together whether that looks joyful or whether that looks sorrowful, things hold together in Christ. He is preeminent over all things. And therefore, I think that's part of why Paul can start by saying this perhaps emotionally perplexing sentence, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. See, when I read a verse like that, first of all, I want to know how in the world is he rejoicing in his sufferings. That's the very definition of suffering is something that, that makes you sad, that is hard, that you don't rejoice in. And yet Paul has found a secret whereby he rejoices in them. And I've never thought that it would be <clears throat> sufficient simply to say, well, buck up and be happy. Right? The, the whole point is that Paul has found something which uh, sincerely gives him a joy that is greater than in his circumstances. That if we were to find that, we would too, ah, we, we, we also, we would say, oh, I, I get it now. I get it now. It's not just that he's trying to be super spiritual in saying this. It's that he has literally found something that gives him a greater joy than prison can give him greater trial. And so Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings because he knows what it is to be in Christ. Now, th that's part of a bigger sentence in this verse. Paul says he rejoices in his sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Now, that's kind of a perplexing sentence. That what Paul is saying is that he is filling up in his body that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. How could there be anything lacking in Christ's afflictions? 
After all, one of the major themes of Colossians, and maybe all of Paul's letters, is the sufficiency of Christ, the finality of the finished work of Christ, that there is no lack in the work of Christ. Right? That's the whole point of what he's been saying. There is no lack. Christ is perfectly sufficient. You don't need to add anything else to Christ. You don't need to add anything to your experience of Christ. Right? A fulfilling, happy, joyful life is not Christ plus this, this, and this. It's, it's Christ. Right? So for the Colossians, who were dealing perhaps with these false teachers who had come into the church and were, were teaching this extra wisdom, this additional knowledge that you had to have, right? it's very clear that Paul is saying, no, you don't need anything but Christ. He is perfectly sufficient. In fact, he will say, if you try to add anything to Christ, you may think you're getting more. The reality is you're getting less. Right? You're not making yourself more acceptable or worthy. You actually do the opposite because you're not trusting in Christ and him alone. Now, we know that. Right? We know that. So that raises this question, what does he mean? That he is somehow filling up that which is lacking in Christ. How could anything be lacking in the afflictions of Christ? So I want to answer that question to, as best as I can. Here's a few hints to get us started. First, hints to get us started is that this word that he uses here, afflictions, when he says he's filling up in his uh, flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, that word afflictions is never used in the New Testament to refer to the redemptive suffering of Christ, that is his death, burial, and resurrection. Right, that's, that's the redemptive suffering of Christ. That is the suffering that Christ endured on behalf of his people. That was the finished work. That was Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished, there's nothing more to be done. This word afflictions never refers to those particular sufferings. So I don't think, I think <clears throat> what Paul is doing here is he's talking about something different. A different type of afflictions. Not the redemptive sufferings of Christ, but something else some other affliction that Christ would suffer that's not the atonement for sin kind of affliction. Now, the next two clues to understand what I believe Paul is talking about here both come by remembering the story of Paul's conversion. And if we remember how was Paul converted, the story is in Acts chapter 9. And that actually is, that should make sense because Paul actually talks um, verse 25 of Colossians, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me. So he refers back to that time when God called him to be an apostle. When he gave him the stewardship of the ministry which he was to fulfill. Now, Acts chapter 9, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn there because I want to read a few of these verses. Acts chapter 9 is the, the conversion of Paul. And, and the first clue, I think, is is Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. And, and I don't have to remind you, I, I don't think, what Paul's life was like before he met Christ. We know that Paul was evil. He was wicked. He was the very picture of depravity. And most prominently in the book of Acts, Paul was a persecutor of the church. If the church was suffering... In these chapters of Acts, the reason was because of Paul. He was the one making them suffer. Right? Chapter 7, <clears throat> Stephen is stoned <coughs> as the first Christian martyr. Paul is there, 
And he's holding the garments of the ones who are throwing the stones, and he is approving of what they do. Chapter 8 and 9, it says Paul is still persecuting the church. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The whole reason that Paul is on the Damascus road in the first place is because he is going to Damascus in order to round up the Christians in order that he might bring them back to Jerusalem to persecute them further. And he's already asked the high priest to grant him these letters uh, in order to allow him to do that, letters to the, the synagogues along the way, in order to give him permission to gather the Christians up and round them up and to bring them back to Jerusalem. That's why he's on the Damascus road to start with. Jesus wasn't having any of that. And he appears to Paul, but after his conversion, look at verses 15 and 16, and if you're in there in uh, Acts 9. This is what the Lord says to Ananias, who's on his way to talk to Paul. He says, <clears throat> The Lord said, Go, for he, that is Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Immediately upon conversion, God is saying to Paul, I'm going to show you how much you will now have to suffer for the sake of Christ. And so, before conversion, Paul was inflicting the suffering. After conversion, he's going to suffer for Christ. Now, that seems like there's a little bit of poetic justice in that, but it goes far beyond that, I believe. It's not just a sort of quid pro quo, you sinned, now I'm going to get you for it. That's not what's going on. I think it turns out to be a lot sweeter than that. Because Paul is going to come to the conclusion that, that some of God's richest purposes for his people are only accomplished through suffering. This is part of God's plan to bless Paul. To show him how much he must suffer for the sake of the name. Suffering is one of God's favorite pruning hooks that makes his people more fruitful. It's one of his favorite furnaces to burn away the dross in our lives in order that we might be more holy and pure and blameless before him. And it's through suffering that God makes his ministers. It's only those who have been humbled appropriately through affliction and have received the comfort of Christ who are then able to give comfort to others who are going through afflictions. Now, <clears throat> that's a clue, but look back for another clue. Acts 9, verses 4 through 5. Acts 9, verses 4 through 5, at the very moment of his conversion, Jesus appears to Paul on this road to Damascus where he's going to round up the Christians. And, Paul, and Jesus says to him, excuse me, Verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, that is Saul, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul thought he was persecuting Christians. Jesus shows up and he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? There's such a close affinity between Jesus and his people, that when the church suffers, when believers are suffering, Jesus is suffering. Because Paul is persecuting people, that's what he thought he was doing, and Jesus comes up and he says, 
why are you persecuting me? And he says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. You see, what this shows us is that that Jesus shares in the sufferings of his people. Likewise, we, when we suffer, we share in the sufferings of Christ. There's such a communion, there's such a unity between Christ and the church that when the church suffers, Jesus feels the pain. Listen to some of these verses about the sufferings of Christ and sharing in them. Romans 8, 17, Paul writes, Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Remember the words of Philippians 3.10. This Paul says this is his greatest desire, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Or again, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. All of these verses say that we as believers will share the sufferings of Christ. And it's not just a minor sort of side thing that we find in one or two verses. This is throughout the New Testament that we suffer, and when we do, we share the sufferings of Jesus. When you suffer as a Christian, it's not just that you're suffering for Christ. That would be noble. But you're also suffering with Christ. Right? We share in the sufferings of Christ because the afflictions of his people are the afflictions of Christ. The afflictions of Christians are the afflictions of Christ. Now, here's two joys of suffering with Christ that we see in these verses. We can't leave these verses without pointing out how much joy is here. The first joy is to know that Christ is with us and that we may experience communion with Christ in our sufferings and in our afflictions. We have a communion with Christ in that because when Christians suffer, Jesus feels that pain. When we suffer, he is suffering with us. Our sorrows are Jesus' sorrows. And so there's a certain communion that the believer will have with Christ that, that you only experience through suffering with Christ. And that's one of those truths. Right? I said, I, I don't think Paul is just trying to sound super spiritual in saying he can rejoice in sufferings. I think he must have been on to some secret, some thing, some reality, some truth that he knew that actually gave him a joy in suffering that was greater than the pain. And here's one of them, is that he knew there was a communion with Christ to be had in it that there was a special communion in the sufferings of Christ that he didn't have any other way. The second joy, again, it's mentioned in all of those verses, is to know that our suffering with Christ is only the prelude to being glorified with Christ. All of the verses talk about it. Just as Christ suffered, died, and then was glorified with new life, that's exactly the pattern of the Christian life as well. We suffer with Christ, in order that we might be glorified with Christ. That we may share in his sufferings, that by any means possible we attain the resurrection. We share in his sufferings, that we may also rejoice when his glory is revealed. That's the pattern. Sufferings in this life that are experienced with Christ and for Christ, in the presence of Christ, 
and therefore following it up with the glory of Christ. Now, I want to stop and ask a a very practical question. Do your sufferings count? This is a question that I, I have had very often when talking about suffering in the Christian life. We get this idea that Paul can talk in this exalted language because he is suffering for Christ, right? It's because he's preaching the gospel that people hate him. That's why he's being stoned. That's why he's being imprisoned. That's why he's being beaten because of preaching the gospel. Most of our sufferings that we endure in this life are not so specifically tied to preaching the gospel, right? We endure sickness in this life. We endure sadnesses that seem to come for no apparent reason, certainly not as a, a result of our obedience to Christ. We just have struggles. And the question is always like, okay, Paul is obviously suffering for Christ. What about me? Am I just, am I suffering for Christ or am I just suffering? Do my sufferings count? And I, <clears throat> I want to say my answer, and this is what I think the Bible teaches, absolutely. Absolutely they count as suffering with and for Christ. Specifically this, if you are trying to follow Jesus, to believe in him, to be his disciple, take up your cross and follow him, to be faithful to him, to love him, and doing that is more difficult because of your sufferings, then you're suffering for Christ. If your obedience towards Christ is made more difficult uh, because of your sufferings, then absolutely that is suffering with Christ And he is suffering with you in those things. So now we can come back to our verse in in Colossians chapter 1. Where Paul says that he is suffering. And in his sufferings, he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the church. So in that verse, what are the afflictions of Christ? Now, Based on what we just said here, based on the verses that we have read in Acts and from Paul's own experience, I believe that when he says the afflictions of Christ, that that is simply another way of talking about the afflictions of the church. Because we suffer with him and he suffers with us. Because when his people are being persecuted, he says, why are you persecuting me? There is this identity. The sufferings of Christ can also be the sufferings of the church. And it's a necessary suffering. We know that, that it's, it's not some surprise to God that the church is going to go through sufferings and afflictions and difficulties and struggles. It actually has to happen. That's part of God's plan. Paul knew it in his life that it was necessary for him to suffer for the sake of Christ. It's necessary because as Paul would preach in Acts 14 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said anyone who would take up his anyone who would be his disciple must take up their cross daily and follow him. Paul would write to Timothy his protege and say all those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus said if they persecuted me they will persecute you also. A servant is not greater than his master. It's necessary because in Revelation chapter 6 we get this little peek behind the curtain into the, the, the view of heaven and the saints in heaven who have been martyred for the sake of the gospel are asking God, how long, how long, O Lord, until you judge our blood? And God says to them, 
that they are to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who are to be killed as they had. God says there is still suffering that the church must yet endure until it's complete. And when it's complete, then God will come in judgment and he will avenge the blood of the martyrs. But he says, not yet, it's not complete. There's, a, there's still a, a certain amount of suffering that the church is yet to go through. These are the necessary sufferings of the church in order to enter the kingdom of God, and therefore these are the afflictions of Christ. They are the afflictions of the church. They're the afflictions of Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is he is rejoicing because he understands that as he suffers, he is filling up in his flesh these necessary afflictions. He knows there is a certain amount that has to come before God comes in judgment. He says, it's coming on me and I rejoice in that because that does nothing but hasten that day when God avenges our blood. When he comes and takes his church to be with himself. When he comes and makes all things right once and for all. And so he can rejoice. He is filling up what is necessary in these afflictions, the afflictions of Christ. And he's rejoicing because he's been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ and have communion with Christ. You see, when Jesus was on the earth, the world hated him. The world persecuted him. Now that he's gone, the world still hates him. They still have more hatred, they have more afflictions, but he's not here to receive them. We receive them in his place. So they hate the church. They hate believers. They persecute And those are the afflictions of Christ that we receive. Now, let me try to... I have four points of application. What are some takeaways that we can take from a a verse like this, um, a passage like this? Here are four things. First, you may rejoice in the midst of your sufferings, knowing that Jesus counts your afflictions as his afflictions. You may rejoice in your sufferings knowing that Jesus counts your afflictions as his afflictions. This life is full of trouble. Man is born to trouble. As surely as sparks fly upward, being a Christian doesn't excuse you from suffering. If anything, it guarantees suffering. But if you suffer as a Christian, you are blessed. If you suffer as a Christian, you are blessed. And part of that blessing is knowing that there is a communion with Christ. That he says... Why are you persecuting me? He identifies with you in that. He's a compassionate, loving high priest because he suffered. He's able to help you when you suffer. Number two, you may rejoice in your sufferings because they are earning for you an eternal weight of glory. You may rejoice in your sufferings knowing that they are earning for you an eternal weight of glory. When Paul says he is filling up what is lacking... He's telling us there's a definite end point. He's filling it up to get to that point. <clears throat> you experience union with Christ in sufferings for a time. You will also experience union with him in glory. But there's an order to it. There's an order to it. Every verse said there's an order that first we suffer with Christ. Second, we are glorified with him. First comes the cross. And only later comes the crown. So, endure suffering. Endure it. Be glad in the midst of it. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. They are earning for you an eternal weight of glory. Number three, 
You may rejoice in the midst of your sufferings because God is using them to make you an ambassador of Christ's comfort. You may rejoice in your sufferings knowing that God uses them to make you an ambassador of Christ's comfort. Only those who know what it is to be comforted by Christ in the midst of affliction will be able to minister comfort from Christ to others who are in affliction. We don't always know why we suffer. We, that's always the question. The first question that you hear when someone is suffering is why? Why? We don't know. We know, we can say at least this, that God has a purpose in using it to minister comfort to you in order that you may minister comfort to others. This is exactly what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1, that God comforts us in our afflictions that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If we want to be useful for God, if we want to be an instrument of his comfort, then we need to know what it is to enjoy the comfort of Christ and the comforts of this world have left. To enjoy and to love the comfort of Christ when it is our only comfort. Now, that's number three. Number four, you don't need to fear suffering for the sake of Christ. That's the fourth application, is you do not need to fear suffering for the sake of Christ. And I say this for those of you who possibly haven't resonated with a single thing in this sermon yet to this point because you don't feel like you're suffering right now. That's okay. Just wait. Suffering comes to everyone in, in their own time. Some it's heavier to bear than others. But you don't need to fear it because Christ will walk through it with you and he will share your afflictions. But I also say it knowing that there might be some we can pray, some in this congregation whom the Lord is going to call to do foreign missions, perhaps in a place where it is still scary to be a Christian. There are still places like that in the world where it is scary to be a Christian and to profess the name of Christ. And it could be that some here will feel the Lord calling them and leading them to go do missions for the sake of Christ in one of those places. And to do that, you need the spirit of the Apostle Paul, who did not fear suffering for the name of Christ, but knew that he could rejoice in it because first comes the cross, second comes the crown. And the crown will always come to those who are in Christ. And then the last reason I say this is because right now, May 2018, being a Christian in California is relatively easy. We don't suffer for being a Christian today, at least not much. Maybe not other than suffering the scorn of the cultural elites or the occasional eye roll now and then. But we don't suffer much. But that's not going to last forever. There will come a time when this may be one of those places where it's not easy to be a Christian. This may be one of those places where it's scary to profess the name of Christ because there will be suffering that is attached to it. There are places like that in the world today where our brothers and sisters are paying the price for their confession. And that may come here. And if it does come here, we're going to need more than ever to have verses like Colossians 1.24 where we follow the spirit of the Apostle Paul and saying we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that in our flesh we are filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ and the afflictions of his people because first comes the cross and second comes the crown. And that if we share with him in his sufferings, we will also share with him in glory. And that is our great hope that there is coming that day, brothers and sisters, where sufferings 
and afflictions and fears and sadnesses and struggles will be no more. But God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, every tear from the eyes of those who have suffered for him, every tear from the eyes of those who have known the weight of the cross of Christ, who have felt in their flesh the afflictions of being his. And yet now they will know the comfort of being his, the joy of being with him. And that day will never, ever end. And so we need this verse for us today to buttress up our our souls in the midst of our current suffering, because that's real. Many of us are suffering in different ways. And if you're not today, you will be eventually. It comes. It comes. It's part of life. Jesus says so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we give you the thanks and the praise for you are good. Let not our souls forget all of your benefits. And Lord, we pray now that the the spirit that you have given to your people will take the word of God and impress it on the hearts of the people of God. That it may take root, that it may grow up and bear fruit many, many times that which has been sown. That you will use it as the instrument to change and to refine and to prune your people that we might give glory to Christ in all things, that we might rejoice in Christ in all things. Lord, we pray, exalt our Savior, Jesus Christ, before us and before all the nations. 